Welcome to this episode of the What's Next LinkedIn Live show. I am your host, Tiffany Bova, and I have the wonderful pleasure of welcoming Matt Higgins to the show. And before I jump into our most important part of this conversation, bullish and bearish, I'm going to read a, a longer bio than I normally do because when I read this, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to read this whole thing. So oh, no. Matt, just... <laughs> Is there anything I could do to make you not do that? <laughs> no, there's nothing okay. that you can do to make me not do it. Okay. All right. So as a kid, Matt is no longer a kid, but as a kid, Matt would take any job to survive, selling flowers on street corners in Queens, scraping gum under tables at McDonald's. For any of you who have put gum under there, don't do it. Someone has to take it off until he dropped out of high school at 16 to take care of his sick mother. A decade later, he was the youngest person ever named mayor's press secretary, managing the media response to the worst terrorist attack in history. He would go on to help run the rebuilding of the World Trade Center site as chief operating officer, led the business of two NFL teams, rivals nonetheless, the Jets and the Dolphins, neither of which I like, before he was 40, built a billion-dollar portfolio of consumer brands, saved New York City's iconic Magnolia Bakery during the pandemic, became a guest shark on Shark Tank before launching his own spinoff with the creator of The Apprentice, Mark Burnett, and he joined the faculty of Harvard Business School to teach the leading program in the nation on direct-to-consumer businesses. That's why I wanted to read that. Oh, that's not so, bad, actually. I was like, okay. oh, that's kind of, because it was short but tight and good sentences, so that was good. Right? Yeah, right. that was so good. It passed right. the Smith okay. test of Matt. Yeah, that Check. did not create too much anxiety. So that was good. Thank you. So I always say, like, we should just mic drop, and that was the end of our conversation, right, Matt? It's like it's only it can only go down. It only get worse is from there. Exactly. <laughs> now I have to like anyway. asterisk everything that you just said. Well, it didn't go great. <laughs> but he also has a new book out called "Burn the Boats." It came out in February 2023. It's doing amazing. That's what we're going to talk about. But as always, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't start off our show with what I call bullish and bearish. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready, Matt? I, I'm ready. All right. The Netflix quarterback series. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. I haven't seen it. Oh, you haven't seen it? Well, I'm mm. surprised. I live under a rock. I'm so bad with anything cultural. I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just binge watched it coming back from New York, as a matter of fact, this week. And it was, I got through almost all but the last show. And, you know, I loved the whole part of the psychology and behind the scenes of the game. You know, it just makes you understand the, all that goes into it, I guess, right? Because you were obviously part of it. Now I need to watch it. No, now I'm embarrassed, but yeah, I just don't watch a ton of TV. All right. I will give you a pass on that one. All All right. right. The next one, robot chefs, bullish or bearish? Bearish. All right. The third one, an AI board member, bullish or bearish? Bearish and stupid. (laughs) <laughs> how do you really feel matt tell me yeah, tell me how be, you really feel i'd be emphatic on that one <laughs> all right well let's dig in because what i loved about burn the boats is you sort of mix this science history psychology kind of looking at ways to reimagine failure plans, goals, running businesses, and having such a wonderful storied and colored experience on your resume, just based on everything I just said, what inspired you to go, I think I need to put this down on paper. I think I need to burn the boats. Yeah, 
Great question. Uh, I think uh, taking a step back, we all have a question when we get to a certain point in life and we've accumulated credentials and money and autonomy, most importantly, like, what are you going to do with that collectively? For me, I would, I would say all that's imbued me with a degree of authority. And I started feeling alienated from my own manifestation in the world. I'd show up to things and people would presume now, uh, well, white male, well, you know, nice suits, probably, you know, born on third base and teach at Harvard, Shark Tank. All that's fine, but kind of useless, maybe aspirational, but not inspirational, not even to me. Like, that's why when you read the bio, I was like, oh, please don't. But the question is, well, what am I going to do with that authority? And I thought I have all these incredible interventions and conversations with people throughout the course of my career, these trajectory changing moments in their lives that feel like this is what it's all about. And my thought is, can I use the authority that I've collected that makes people pay attention to me? What's the best use of that authority? And I kept thinking, like, I'm stuck at a moment in time, like a little fly in ember discovered millions of years ago. And that moment in time is when I was 16 and I was powerless and just have been coming to the conclusion all my life, like I'm enjoying what I'm doing, but this is not what I'm meant to be doing. And what I'm meant to be doing is finding a way to intervene, maybe make a trajectory change in somebody's life and ameliorate suffering. This book is my attempt to take those conversations where I've made a difference and scale it. That's the very short, long answer. And isn't it interesting, and you probably know from the book, right, that you go back to 16. Like, I have a similar something at 16. You know, my best friend's mom was president of a multi-million dollar business, and this was in the early 1980s. So first of all, there wasn't a lot of women running their own businesses, mm -hmm. so I could see what I wanted to be. And it changed, wait a second, like, what do I actually want to do and how do I want to do it? And then I worked for her for like seven years, and I always joke, everything I learned about business, I learned at the carnival because she was in the carnival business. And so like kind of everything you learned about business was scraping gum off That's underneath true. the tables at McDonald's. And learned about life and people growing up poor. It's interesting. We're, we're conditioned that we need to go to therapy and we need to resolve all these issues. And for a while I would beat myself up. Like, why are you still talking about mom dying? Like get over yourself, you know? And, and for a, in my twenties, I would not judge people, but feel like I got over it. You should too. That's, that was my prism. And then actually when I uh, got divorced sort of brought me to my knees in a way that I couldn't conceal, you know what I mean? When you're going through a divorce, it's very obvious that you failed at a very important part of your life. And it's sort of, and I talk about in the book, I reframe my, re my relationship with myself, but also with the need to get over it, realizing one, I actually didn't get over it. I ran from it, but two, I shouldn't get over it because within that trauma that I carry with me, is this deep empathy that like can make me pass out when I see somebody in a similar situation that I experienced, a single mom laboring to, to improve their life. Rather than get over it, I want to lean into it and I want to use it as a, a weapon to catalyze people to make these kinds of changes. So maybe that's grandiose. Maybe that's a little boy hero complex. I have no idea, but, I, but that's what I'm doing. And why do you think it is that because I think that's a very empathetic approach and I've had a lot of people on these shows, right? I've been very successful. And one thing I find pretty consistent and common is kind of that feeling, right? That in, in different ways, right? It manifests itself or it's triggered for certain reasons or different reasons, but that sort of lead with the heart, be empathetic towards those people who work for you and are around you and the, you know, purpose over profit and all the things we've sort of spoken about, you know, at nauseum, but yet so many leaders struggle with that journey or transition or catalyst to get them out of that status quo thinking of hard charge leader, 
you know, the stick rather than being empathetic, right? And doing it for a greater purpose than just the almighty capitalist dollar. What do you think the struggle is for leaders who aren't able to make that transition? And especially those that you found and interviewed for your book, what, what was the common thread for them? I think the, the ones that sort of struggle to embrace empathetic leadership, obviously it's insecurity often, but I think it's a it's not embracing the power of self-awareness. It's this desire not to look within, right? So when you're confronted with a similar fact pattern to what you are concealing or harboring, like you, you reflexively resist it. And I have found that those leaders who don't extend to themselves the same compassion that others need, right? If you're not doing it for yourself, you're not going to do it for anyone else. And so I always, the reason why I talk in the book so openly, sometimes cringy about some of the things that I went through is because People always say, Matt, well, how do you cultivate awareness in an organization? Self-awareness sounds great, but how do you do it? I'm like, actually, you start by being very vulnerable, surprisingly vulnerable, but not in Instagram talking points like failure is good. Like, how about sharing something that makes you almost cry if you have to read about it again? Like, I can't read the pages of my book devoted to my mother, and I can't read the ones devoted to divorce, struggle with the cancer section, <laughs> like, because it's raw and real and people can feel that. So what I find when I'm trying to have a breakthrough, unless the founder or CEO or leader is a narcissist or a sociopath, which is a decent percentage of people, but <laughs> if, if, if they're not that, it's because something has them stuck that they haven't crossed a threshold of being able to acknowledging what it is they're insecure about. And hopefully by me modeling it that, and in the book, I had a, a, somebody call me up. It was one of the greatest compliments in a book. And they said, I know the true story of the role you made in a lot of people's lives. You profiled in the book. Number one, you are like Stalin. You erased yourself from the photos. Like you don't, you barely exist in these stories, even though you played a key role. And I don't say that as a humble brag. And then he said, and yet you amplified the pain and the trials. And I said, well, what's more useful? Me aggrandizing like that I had a role or me amplifying in a shameless way, what it is I'm trying to teach. And so I, I usually feel like people are stuck. And that's why I'm such a big believer in psychologists and whatnot, and always looking under the hood, but uh, it starts with me. You know, you had a, two seasons uh, as a guest on Shark Tank. You are actually my third shark. Um, so I- you, who, are those pretend, who are the other pretenders to the throne that have- Yes, well, but, you're, but, but I will say, you were my first US shark. Oh, okay, good. Well, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. So I had a Dragon's Den out of Canada, Michelle Romanov, which is the Canadian version of Shark Tank. Yep. And then I had uh, Naomi Simpson, which is the Australia Shark Tank. So she's a dear friend of mine. And 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 so uh, is Michelle. So Matt, you you hold the throne for the U.S. Shark Tank. By the way, I really want to be a guest on on the Australia version. I'm going to I'm going to manifest that intention right now because. Uh, well, I, I will connect you. All right, I, good. There we I go. You, it happened now. right here on this show. It happened right here. I got you. But on Shark Tank, when you were making decisions about making those investments, did you look for that sort of vulnerable, empathetic, you know, open kind of person, right? Because people don't invest in companies, they invest in people, right? Right. right? And so was there like, damn, this is a really good idea, but the person isn't right for me. Or yeah. oh, this isn't a great idea, but the person is right for me. Yeah. Well, what's fun about Shark Tank from a psychological standpoint, right, is that you're really trying to assess somebody in 40 minutes. It's basically the, they, they range from 30 to 50, but on average, probably 37 minutes. So you're, you're, you're doing a lot of pattern recognition when you're sitting there. You're also toggling between different mental states, which is fascinating. On the one hand, you're trying to seduce, right, because you're beating your other sharks and it's real money at stake. But on the other hand, you're assessing. So you're selling and closing and buying all at the same time. And But um, I... I went into there having seen every episode, but having very strong opinions on verbal cues. 
And I would look for these proxies of the different things that matter to me. And one of the most important is this uh, confidence and humility at the same time. Some people think they're in opposition. They're not. They go together because you need the confidence to look within and audit yourself and the humility to acknowledge that you get things wrong because that's the genesis of pivots, right? So, but now I got 40 minutes to assess that. So what I'm looking for, I hate on the show when like Mark Cuban would be like, your name sucks. And a person's like, good change. You know, your product stinks and you should really use a co-man. Done. Which one should I use? I look for people who have the EQ to be like, that's interesting. Well, let me tell you a little bit about why I don't, or I respect that. But like, um, and so I'm looking for are people giving in too easy because now I know that they're reading the wind or they lack integrity because they'll do anything to get a deal close. So a lot of my experience on Shark Tank was looking for the principles I believe in, but manifesting in verbal cues in 40 minutes. Yeah. And for those of you who may not know how this works, and, and I, I sat on the filming of Australia, not US, it's a day. And the sharks wear the same outfit over the course of multiple days so that they can cut shows. So, right. So yes. you may see five to eight, nine, 10 people in a given day. Right. And so you're not only just looking at them, it's up against even potentially who you've already seen that day. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, called continuity. So you got to wear the same dirty clothes all day that you're yes. sweating profusely freaking. Well, with the shark tank, it's going back to the point about modeling vulnerability to cultivate self-awareness. You know, when I went on the show, you watched me on TV, you would you would certainly say he was good enough. You might say maybe, oh, he's kind of like a natural at it, right? The feedback was amazing. I remember the, the lead producer for ABC, uh, who's the home of the show, comes up and goes, better get used to that chair because you're going to be in it for a very long time. I was like, yeah. But anyway, point is, when you see the me on, on the show, you look like, oh, he's pretty good on natural. I had a fundamental decision to make. I'm like, do I allow that to be the perception of my experience on Shark Tank? Or do I use this as a teaching moment and pull back the curtain about how I was an absolute anxious, embarrassing mess going into that show? And I don't know why other people, part of me started to feel like no one else talks about this, by the way, even from a content standpoint, like, and I'm like, maybe I was the only pathetic person that found Shark Tank intimidating, but I decided in the book to tell the story. And I tell the story about how the night before I had been up for two, I'm a terrible insomniac. I've been up for two days and my sweet wife, Sarah, does everything with me like five in the morning, turns to be like, hey, baby, are you ready to do it? I'm like, no, I've been up for two days and I took two Ambien and nothing worked, but I have a plan. I'm going to call Rohan Oza because he lives two miles away and he has been a guest on Shark Tank. And I'm telling him I had the salmon. I I was looking at the menu in the middle of the night. I'm like, salmon, (laughs) salmon will be, I'm going to tell them. Anyway, I tell the story in the book about how I overcame imposter syndrome and Damon John gave me one of the best pieces of advice for anyone out there who has dealt with imposter syndrome, which is 70% of you, even if you're lying. Like Damon John said, when I, conf- when I confided in him, he goes, first of all, F those people. <laughs> but second of all, Matt, you belong here because you are here. And it was like Socrates, you know, it's sort of, I think therefore I am. And with the point of that statement for anybody listening is, uh, is that there is no final arbiter of belonging And that the reality is you have to declare that if you're in the room, you're at the boardroom, no one's going to invite you to take the seat, that that is enough proof positive, right? And I talk in the book about how I use self-talk in the third person, other tactics. But the more important part of that story is that is the decision to share it. And I keep looking for somebody else who's sharing their own. I'm like, I'm either an outlier, which statistically doesn't make sense, or people are making a very different choice. Because I find in society, we, we talk about failure, but it's always in the past tense. We want to package it to keep it safe. And the point of my book of Burn the Boats 
is that humans progress and regress simultaneously all day long. And when you as a leader have achieved a certain station in life, if you don't share that reality, you're actually creating distance with somebody looking at you being like, oh, you have it all figured out, but I haven't figured out. My book is an attempt to tell you that I got to asterisk the hell out of that bio because I don't have it all figured out. And look, one of my previous guests and a dear friend of mine, Tasha York, she is like sort of the self-awareness. That's, that's really where she, and she coaches executives on it. And, you know, if you ask people, are they self-aware on a lot of things that you've just described, like, are you even self-aware that you have imposter syndrome? Are you self-aware that you're not, you don't have high EQ? Are you even looking within those kinds of things? It's like 90% of the people say, yeah, I'm totally self-aware. When in reality, only 10 to 15% of people are actually self-aware. And the rest of us are all lying to ourselves. I wonder how she measures. I wonder how she measures that. It would be really funny if somebody's like, "I'm really not self-aware." <laughs> like, I wonder how you measure lack of self-awareness. Well, I think it's a series of questions, and mm. she has a whole questionnaire on her website about being self-aware, not being self-aware, and gives you a score. The whole nine yards, like, right? Wow. I was like, <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, am I self-aware? Like, I I feel like I'm self-aware, but after she's just told me that, maybe I think I am, and I'm not, right? And so I did it and because she's a friend, right? I did it. She took the survey. We like had a conversation about it and, and found areas where I could improve. But I would say I have always believed I'm a lifelong learner. So if you are that lifelong learner, you know, what, what are you looking to actually, how deep are you willing to go to say, I keep getting this back from people? Well, they can't all be wrong and I can't be right. <laughs> right? Like, so what is it that I'm either doing or saying or projecting or whatever it is? that maybe is either being misinterpreted. And if it's being misinterpreted, then I have to change how I'm doing it because that is not my intention, right? That kind of conversation, right? Right. But I would say that I see it a lot more in women than I do in men. And I also see the the more senior the man, the less I see it in, mm. in sort of, and I'm making huge sweeping generalizations here. Well, it's fun. I'm, I think I'm allowed from a, I think I can agree with you. And that's because it's against my, my species. So I would agree with that assessment <laughs> that the higher up the man, the more over-indexing on narcissistic qualities and the less that self-awareness is valued. Yeah. And, and I'd say, I, I, I gave an interview many years ago and I said, do not misinterpret confidence with ego. Like I'm confident in what I do, but I'm also confident enough to go, I don't know, or I'm not sure. Or, hmm, I didn't see it that way. Like that was really, you know, like where you're participating. And even like, I have a new book out called The Experience Mindset and people go, why did you write it? And I go, well, my first book, I thought I nailed something and I completely missed employee. Like totally missed it from the book. Didn't even talk about it. Like 150 words of 60,000 words, I mentioned the word employee. This book is a total mea culpa to the fact that I totally missed it. And you could say, wow, I'm a thinker's 50 twice. I'm a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Like I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, like those accolades, right? That we talk about, Yeah. but I missed it. Right. And so the book was kind of my way of going, hold on. It's the 11th path for the first book that I missed. Right. Kind of a thing. And now this one's become a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And I think people really enjoy the story of me saying, I missed it. Like, and that's why I wrote it. And they'll go, wow, I can't believe you said that. And then in my head, I go, well, why wouldn't you think I'd say that? Like, Right. Don't mistake that confidence for the fact that I have an expert's mind or it's ego or there aren't situations where that shows up. Obviously, I'm human. It's not perfect. But I do think that being able to to do that uh, is important. So with that, although that was not where I thought we were going to take this, if someone's listening and they're like, how do I lean in more the way Matt has? Right. It's uncomfortable for me. I'm scared. I'm insecure about doing it or I don't have a network of people around me 
that would sort of encourage it, right? And and lift me up when I'm really starting to feel uncomfortable and insecure that I, I have people around me that kind of behave as I do. Where, where would you go for sort of first steps on this? I get asked that too. You know, how do you begin along the path? And I always say you got to get reps in, right? It's a degree of muscle memory. For those who would, the thing that's holding you back is a degree of fear of exposure. You know, take little steps of sharing things that you wouldn't normally do. And but with people that who have your best interest, right? Like just start sharing things. It doesn't have to be big reveals. It just uh, start going that direction. Reframe your relationship with imposter syndrome of anxiety and feeling like you're fronting is the thing that's that's holding you back. Remember the alternative if you didn't feel imposter syndrome, which is just your brain saying, I have no neural pathways for this journey. I'm uncomfortable, right? Scrambling because I always think about Goodnight Moon. Why do we like Goodnight Moon so much? It's familiar. We like the repetition. We're humans, right? We're little babies. And so reframe your relationship with imposter syndrome as a feedback loop, showing that you're doing uncomfortable things. It's these little hacks that whatever it does to that can take you out of out of your comfort zone. And then at the same time, audit the people who are in your foxhole. Like I go into the book about these archetypes of toxic leadership. What's great about writing a book is you get to make up words for things, right? So there's, there's always this insidious person. We all know them at work. Is this boss we've ever had where it's like, so weird. I know I did a good job, but they they like, they're not saying it, but I heard from a colleague, they said nice things about me in a, in a meeting as if I'm a piece of property, but they never said it to my face. Those are the withholders who are attempting to use your need for approval to destabilize you. So you also have to be honest about who's around you that is undermining you in ways that are hard to put your finger on and might not have anyone to validate. I attempted in the book to articulate them, but I missed a lot of them. So it's a range of things, It's but it all starts with like, what's holding me back and why am I so afraid? Last point, which I discovered when I had cancer, that when I got to the other side of it and I didn't die, obviously, I yearned, I missed the some of the moments that I had at Sloan Kettering, weirdly. I had in some ways never felt so peaceful. And I was like, why is that? And I realized it's because the things that I think about all day and obsess about didn't hold up juxtaposed against the immediate prospect of death. Like the New York Times real estate section, looking at brownstones didn't hold up, worrying about a promotion didn't matter, worrying about prestige. And I felt relieved. And so I've embraced since then an app on my phone that I listen to five times a day that reminds me I'm going to die in rather eloquent ways. And what you find is by being by holding on to a sense of mortality, this relates back to your question, it relieves you of a lot of the um, worldly concerns you have and makes it a little bit easier to take those risks, in my opinion. Well, I think there's so much going on right now. You know, there's uncertainty about the economy, jobs, you know, education, politics. I mean, it's endless barrage of just what's the right word? Blech. That's uncertain. We're like we're standing on quicksand. Nobody can stand on solid footing in any arena of our life. Nothing's solid. Right. And so with all that going on, it, it may just some days I just feel overwhelmed. Right. Like, where do I even what should I pick to sort of tackle so I'm just going to go for a hike, right? Or I'm going to go to the beach or I'm going to get in the ocean or I'm going to go work out or play around the golf. Like where is that place where it's quiet, where, you know, the Twitter feed or the X feed, whatever, or LinkedIn or the spot or whatever, like, it just doesn't matter. Like, let me get outside and like try to quiet all that quicksand dust, right? All, yeah. the, all the stuff I'm standing on, if you will. I always imagine myself, I always think of the cat on a roof who lowers their center of gravity when they're in danger to, right? So that I'll get closer to the ground. I always imagine myself from a cat lowering my center of gravity so that I have less to fall and I feel more stable. That's, I always imagine I'm, I'm you know, scrolling along on that roof on the edge and what am I gonna do to feel safe? 
Yeah, and whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that gets you to that place, I think it's important that you be aware that you need to get there, right? If you feel burnt out, you feel disconnected, right? You just feel lost or whatever it might be. But the network around you, you know, I don't want to fly past that because the the five types that you sort of identified, the withholders was one of them, but there's others, right? And I think looking at that foxhole or looking at, I call them my symphony because they all are very unique instruments. Like some are louder, some are more dainty, you know, like some are drummers, some are clarinets, some are violins, some are electric guitars, right? Like in my sort of symphony or my tribe and they play very specific roles. There used to be a lot, there's less now. And, but they play a very specific part in, Hey, I'm thinking about what do you think? Right. Or I really want to do this. Have you, or do you know someone I could, you know, that sort of network, what are the other sort of archetypes? Well, one of them, I mean, I talk about in a book, you know, the corporate gaslighter, which exists in a corporate setting as much as it exists in a, in a personal life. One of the things I actually find fascinating about LinkedIn, even as you and I are time imagining this going on to the universe and everyone watching and how LinkedIn, so, you know, I always say LinkedIn is your vegetables, right? And, uh, you know, Instagram is your dessert, maybe TikTok, and that has its own deficiencies, right? But one big deficiency on LinkedIn is this boundary we try to draw around the personal and the professional. Sometimes people even react. And every once in a while for fun, I put out something about my wife, who's a Jedi and the greatest force multiplier in the history of the world. And without whom, and I don't say this, it's like, oh, he's being nice to his spouse. Like, you know, we do everything together. When I teach at Harvard Business School, she's in the room handling the logistics. Like we just toggle these different environments, but we act on LinkedIn as if these psychological issues don't really matter. Everything's perfectly packaged. And we certainly don't want to bring our personal life to LinkedIn as if there's a demarcation line. So I, I spend a lot of time and energy in the book talking about the psychology and that includes your personal relationships and your foxhole, because as the Italians like to say, the fish rots from the head. Yes, Every company, you show me something downstream at a retail level at a store, and I will trace it all the way back, if not to the CEO, to the person they hired to run retail. And the fish rots from the head, you rot from the head too, as a person. So I'm very passionate about trying to introduce this topic a little bit more to, to LinkedIn. That's okay to talk about your person and your foxhole and your force multiplier, because a lot of people... They settle for less because one, either they think it doesn't exist or they don't deserve it. And I think it's important just to go ahead and model that. That was a little bit of a non sequitur, but I wanted to introduce that. No. And and so those that's two. You've got withholders, office gaslighters. What are the other three? You have um, one of my favorite because it's subtle is a martyr. So I go into the book and do a case study around a, a martyr. A martyr leader, this often happens in a startup that's trying to transition from being bootstrapped to a well-funded startup and struggles because the founder who developed an identity around being able to like, I didn't even come from this field and I bootstrapped this business and suddenly I'm doing stuff. I never even had any idea. And now people are like, how'd you go from being a banker to running a restaurant or whatever it is? Like there's a lot of deification around that reach, but when they're funded, now the expectation changes. Now it's not about you doing the job. It's about you being able to recruit and manage people who are even better than you at doing that. And I find that a martyr type is the one who's like, I just will do it myself. It's on me to do everything. The problem with martyrs is no one's good at everything. And you know, again, it's not, that doesn't have really a negative thing. It can be coming from a good place where I often find it's coming from is the martyr doesn't have the seasoned leadership ability to handle conflict. And they think conflict is a negative. And so they take all the things upon themselves. The other sister, cousin maybe, of that is the victim, the victim CEO, the victim uh, leader who feels completely oppressed 
and the universe is predetermined that, you know, it's all on them. No one else will do their job and they become, you know, contemptuous of everybody else. So those are two examples that I'm, I find the martyr is more coachable than the victim because the victim's made a decision that it's me against the world. The martyr usually doesn't have the seasoning to handle conflict and friction and they can be coached. All right. So that's four, right? Are we missing one? Uh, we are missing one, and I'm forgetting it as we're going. Withholders, through office gaslighters, martyr, victim. There's one other one. I just can't remember it right Whatever now. Whatever it is. Whatever it's it is, fantastic. it's good, and it's, it's made up, because these are the things I've experienced throughout my career. <laughs> I love when people do that, and they're like, on page 22, you said, I'm like, I know, me too. I'm like, I know there's five. If you have written like articles about it for Fast Company, I just can't remember the fifth one. I'll remember as we talk. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Got to read the book. Um, Maybe I'm, I'm holding it back so you read the book. There, there you go. That was the trick. He held it back. So you have to read the book. Yes, exactly. Um, but listen, Matt, this has just been such an amazing conversation. I didn't know where we were going to take this. You know, when we were getting ready to do this, I sort of said, I don't have questions. I, it's like, we're having a cup of coffee and who knows no, where it. it'll go. And I, I would have been thrilled to have had the exact same conversation in person. So thank you so much for showing up today with all your great insights, your vulnerability, empathy, uh, all the things that I think all of us should aspire to be more in tune with, uh, myself included. So thank you for joining us. How can people stay in touch with you, continue to follow your work, besides going up and picking up a copy of Burn the Boats? I'll tell you, I'm on a mission with this book, and it's been an interesting exercise in the title of the book. I've burned the boats for Burn the Boats, and I'm trying to live the title. And so I continue to promote and get the word out, which also creates eye rolls you know, from people like Matt. I mean, you wrote a book, move on, you have the credential. I was like, well, I didn't write the book for the credential. Like, that's sort of silly. I didn't write the book to be a wall. Street Journal bestseller. That's just about conversion. I wrote the book because I know that if I hold up a mirror to somebody out there, they're going to cross the threshold and believe in themselves in a way they haven't felt supported before. I engineered that outcome. I worked for two years of my life meditating. How can I write this book in a narrative way with enough stories and enough authority that I can engineer an outcome and make somebody cross the divide? Every day I wake up to a DM from somebody out there saying like, hey, Matt, I've been having this idea the book gave me the confidence. I quit my job today or something like radical. That is the greatest accomplishment of my life. I say that that is not rhetoric. It is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me, except for my wife, my kids, and the greatest thing that I've ever achieved. So if you read the book and you have decided to make change in your life, if you DM me and tell me you have bought another day of me doing these interviews and therefore you have paid it forward. So I read every single one of them. You'd be shocked how much energy I'm putting into this because I know it's changing people's lives. So DM me, I guess is the point. The book is on Amazon, but I exist on LinkedIn mostly and, uh, and also Instagram. Excellent. And Instagram is dessert along with TikTok as yeah, exactly. Exactly. But eat your vegetables, do your LinkedIn, but talk yes. about personal stuff. It's okay. Yes. All right, Matt. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for joining us here today. It was a special conversation. I'm your host, Tiffany Bova. Thanks for joining us on this episode of What's Next LinkedIn Live. I hope to see you next time. Thanks again, Matt.